0: This is Ruth Mukwana, a humanitarian worker and a writer. In 2021, 235 million people will need humanitarian assistance and protection. While these statistics are shocking, they don't tell the complete human story. This podcast talks to the people responding to this crisis, the people affected by them, and the writers telling their stories. This is Stories and Humanitarian Action. Today, I'm going to talk about Black Eyed Women, one of the stories in The Refugees, a short story collection by Viet Tan Wen. Viet is the author of The Sympathizer, the committed and winner of the Pulitzer Prize. He's the Harold Arnold Chair of English and Professor of English and American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California. Most of the characters in The Refugees are Vietnamese citizens and their families who were forced out of Vietnam at the end of the Vietnam War, living in America. Before I delve into Black Eyed Women, I'd like to share some general information about refugees. By the way, you will hear birds chirping away. I'm doing this podcast in Kampala and uh, it's very early in the morning and birds are waking up. So I hope you enjoy the sound of the birds in the background. According to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, By the end of 2020, there were 82.4 million people forcibly displaced due to persecution, conflict, violence, human rights violations and events seriously disturbing public order. Of these, 26.4 million were refugees. The number of refugees has doubled since 2010 and is higher now than it has ever been. This is despite the impact of the pandemic which reduced the anticipated number of displaced people by around 1.5 million in 2020. So this is quite a staggering number of people displaced globally. There are so many aspects I love about Black Eyed Women, which I've read several times already. Every time I read it, like most of the stories I read for my project, I learn something new. I pick up a new detail I missed. There are also so many themes in this story that I love. You know, there is the theme of love, family, loss, guilt, resilience, ghosts, death, this idea of a good and bad death, and the theme I'd like to talk about, violence. I'd like to catalogue the violence as it evolves in this story and how it has impacted the characters' lives. In my podcasts, you'll often hear me say that war shatters lives, and this is yet again true in black-eyed women we see how the characters' lives have been shattered. Right at the beginning of the story, the theme of violence is introduced, and I'm going to read a paragraph. Fame would strike someone, usually the kind that healthy-minded people would not wish upon themselves, such as being kidnapped and kept prisoner for years, suffering humiliation in a sex scandal, or surviving something typically fatal. These survivors needed someone to help write their memoirs and their agents might eventually come across me. At least your name is not on anything, my mother once said. When I mentioned that I would not mind being thanked in the acknowledgments, she said, let me tell you a story. It would be the first time I had this story, but not the last. In our homeland, she went on, there was a reporter who said the government tortured the people in prison. So the government does to him exactly what he said they did to others. They send him away and no one ever sees him again. That's what happens to writers who put their names on things. In this paragraph, we meet the narrator and her mother, who both remain unnamed in the story. We learn that they share a passion for words. We shall learn that they share a passion for words. But where the narrator prefers the silence of writing, her mother loves to talk. We also learn that the narrator writes ghost stories for survivors and these are you know healthy-minded people who found fame through tragedies for example being kidnapped and kept prisoner for years suffering humiliation in a sex scandal or surviving something typically fatal in fact in the next paragraph we learn that the narrator is currently writing victor de Vito's memoir victor is a sole survivor of an airplane crash that killed 173 people, including his wife and children. And I'll talk about Victor's life a little bit, a bit later in the the podcast. In this paragraph, we're immediately introduced to the violence. This is through the first story. The narrator's mother tells her daughter about a reporter who writes about a government, torturing people in prison and they torture him. They do to him exactly what he says they do to others, her mother says. They send him away and no one ever sees him again. That's what happens to writers who put their names on things. Mind you, the narrator's mother is responding to her daughter's desire to be thanked in the acknowledgments of the books she ghost writes. But what her mother says in these few words is very characteristic of dictatorships, of countries facing war people being disappeared or tortured for criticising their governments. It's a very effective way of cultivating fear in a population, of silencing people. And I don't know any country that is going through conflict, through war, that is going through political turmoil, where people are not disappeared, where loved ones are not constantly looking for, for their family, their friends, who have disappeared. And in most instances, they never ever see them again. Black-eyed women is infused with the narrator's mother's stories, which are generally full of violence. It is it's her way, you know, I think, of talking to her daughter, of communicating with her daughter, of making sense of her world. Initially, her mother's stories were the kind of stories her daughter enjoyed. They, you know, they concerned her father back when he was young and happy. I guess this was before he was drafted into the war, before he lost his son. But then came the stories of terror, like the one about the reporter, the Mara being that life, like the police, enjoys beating people now and again. Finally, there were her favorite kind of stories, the ghost stories, and I'll circle back to the ghosts later on in the podcast. One of the characters in Black Eyed Women is the ghost of the narrator's brother, we are introduced to him when his ghost comes to visit them and the theme of violence is continued. We learn that her brother died a long time ago. In fact, the first time he comes to visit and her mother mentions his name, the narrator doesn't think of him. She doesn't know anyone by that name, but she also doesn't believe her mother when her mother tells her that her brother's ghost has come to visit. In fact, she thinks her mother is senile. But to humor her, she asks her a few questions, including what he looked like. And when her mother says exactly the same as he looked 25 years ago, apparently ghosts look exactly the same as when you last saw them. The narrator then remembers how her brother looked the last time she saw him. She remembers the stunned look on his face, the open eyes that didn't inch even with the splintered board of the boat's deck pressing against his cheek. Here, we start to get an idea of how her brother died. She thinks about how she has struggled to forget him, but by turning a corner, physically or in her mind, she can run into him. He was her best friend. From as far back as she can recall, she could hear his voice outside their house calling her name, and that was her signal to follow him down their villages, lands and pathways through jackfruit and mango groves, to the dikes and fields, dodging shattered palm trees and bomb craters. Despite walking through bomb craters at the time, they actually thought this was a normal childhood. Again, the theme of violence. I'd like to read another excerpt from the story. And this is one from one of the memories from the narrator's childhood. Looking back, however, I could see that we had passed our youth in a haunted country. Our father had been drafted, and we feared that he would never return. Before he left, he had dug a bomb shelter next to our home, a sandbagged bunker whose roof was breasted by timber. Even though it was hot and airless, dank with the odor of the earth and alive with the movement of worms, we often went there to play as little children. When we were older, we went to study and tell stories. When airplanes shrieked overhead and we huddled with my mother in the bunker, he whispered ghost stories into my ear to distract me. Except he insisted they were not ghost stories. They were historical accounts from reliable sources. The ancient crones who chewed betel nut and spat its red juice while squatting on their haunches in the market, tending coal stores or overseeing baskets of wares. Our land's confirmed residents, they said, included the upper half of a Korean lieutenant launched by a mine into the branches of a rubber tree, a scalped black American floating in the creek not far from his downed helicopter, his eyes and the exposed half-moon of his brain glistening above the water, and a decapitated Japanese private groping through cassava shrubbery for his head These invaders came to conquer our land and now would never go home. In this excerpt, we learned that their father had been drafted and they were afraid he would never return. The bomb shelter where they often played as children and then to study and tell stories when they were older. Her brother used to tell her ghost stories to distract her from airplanes shrieking Except he insisted that these weren't ghost stories, but historical accounts of their lands confirmed residents. The language is very, very vivid. You know, the upper half of a Korean lieutenant, launched by a mine into the branches of a rubber tree that was part of their land, a scalped black American floating in the creek not far from his downed helicopter, his eyes and exposed half-moon of his brain glistening above the water. A decapitated Japanese private dropping through cassava shrubbery for his head. The violence here is very vivid and there's a lot in this paragraph. The reference the haunted country is apt. Many countries going through war often feel haunted. We learn about the different countries that were involved in this war. Japan, Korea, America... Towards the end of the paragraph, there's a sentence about how these invaders came to conquer their land and now would never go home. The irony isn't lost on me. But more importantly, in these words, in this paragraph, I can visualize the narrator and her brother playing together as children, huddling together. Their love for each other is tangible, her brother, her best friend, and I immediately understand the gravity of what how much she has lost. And my heart breaks for what she has lost and can never recover. But I also wonder how, as they huddled in this bomb shelter, as they dodged bomb shelters, how it is that these children felt that this was a normal childhood. But I also know if this is the only childhood that they knew, if this was the only childhood they experienced, there was nothing else. For them to think about. This was their point of reference of what normal was like. The narrator tells us that the memories of her early days in America were filled of creatures that lurked in the hallway and also roamed outside. Her parents always peeked through the living room curtains before answering any knock. They were afraid of their young countrymen, boys who had learned about violence from growing up in wartime. Don't open the door for someone you don't know. Her mother used to warn her, you know, once, twice, three times. We don't want to end up like that family tied down at gunpoint. They burned the baby with cigarettes until the mother showed them where they hid the money. You know, her American adolescence was filled with tales of war like this. All of them, proof of what her mother said, that they didn't belong here in a country where possessions counted for everything they had no belongings except their stories but again here you know i think about this family they have escaped violence violence in their country vietnam they're thousands of miles away in america where they came so they could be safe so they could feel protected but the violence follows them it follows them through the you know the young countrymen from their country boys who had learned about violence from growing up in wartime. And not only don't they feel safe, they don't feel that they belong in this place. When the ghost of her brother returns, she wills him to go away, but she reminds herself that he had given up his life for her. The least she can do is to to open the door. During these moments, the present, her brother's ghost visiting her, and what she remembers from her past, what happened years ago during her childhood. The past and present intersect and help us to understand how the narrator lives her life. Crucially here, we really learn that her brother had given up his life for her. And this is quite a very important detail uh, in, in this story. Her brother, the ghost, is blotted and pale hair feathery, skin dark, clad in black shorts and a rugged gray t-shirt, arms and legs bonny. The last time she had seen him, he was taller by her head, now she's taller than him. The black shorts and gray t-shirt, he's wearing stink of brine. She remembers the shorts when they were not black with grime, but pristine blue, when the shirt was not gray and rugged, but white and neat." When he calls her name, his voice is hoarse and raspy, not at all like his adolescent alto. but his eyes are the same, curious as are his lips, slightly parted, always prepared to speak. There's a purple bruise with undertones of black, which gleams on his left temple, but the blood she remembers from back then isn't there, and even though it's not raining, his water-soaked. She can smell the sea on him, and whilst she can smell the bot, rancid with human sweat and excretor. He doesn't meet her gaze. He's fearful of her than she is of him. She's now 38 and he's still 15 years. We now know the past the narrator is confronting took, you know, 25 years ago. More than two decades have gone by and yet her life stopped at that point. She tells us, you know, earlier in the story, she's not good with children. She finds motherhood is too intimate for her, as are relationships that lasted more than one night. And we start to understand a little bit how and why she's sort of living her life the way that she is. On the plot, the purple bruise is mentioned on his forehead, the sea that she can smell on him and the boat. I'm curious to know what caused this bruise, and which bot is the narrator referring to, What happened on that boat. The mother's loss also haunts me, because even though her son is dead, even though he's a ghost, she buys him underwear, a pair of pyjamas, blue jeans, a denim jacket, a pack of socks, knit gloves, a basket, a bus, a baseball cap. After stacking them next to his dried and iron T-shirts and shorts, she says he can't be wandering out in the cold, like a homeless person or some illegal immigrant. Remember he's dead, he's a ghost, but she buys him clothes and doesn't wandering him around like a homeless person or some illegal immigrant. Later on, as the two of them are watching soap operas after dinner, the narrator's mother says, You know, if we hadn't had a war, we would be like the Koreans now. Saigon would be Seoul. Your father would be alive. You would be married with children. I would be a retired housewife, not a manicurist. I would spend my days visiting friends and being visited. And when I died, a hundred people would come to my funeral. She says she would be lucky if 20 people turned up with her daughter taking care of things. And this frightens her mother more than anything. You know, she tells her she can't even remember to take out the garbage or pay the bills. She won't even go outside to shop for groceries. You know, her daughter reassures her and tells her she would remember to take care of her soul. But her mother asks her, when would you hold the work? When would the celebration of my death anniversary be? And what would you say? To this, her daughter says, write it down for me, what I'm supposed to say. And her, brother, and her mother says, "'Your brother would have known what to do. "'That's what sons are for.' And to this, you know, her daughter has no replied. But that sentence again, and that whole dialogue, is a really good illustration of what they have lost, of what they lost um, during this war. The narrator's guilt is also very palpable. You know, she keeps wondering how she lived and how her brother died. She was the younger one, she was the weaker one, yet it was her brother they buried, letting him slip into the ocean without a shroud or a word from her. You know, her mother wailed and her father sobbed, and she remembers that, but she also remembers neither drowned out her own silence. And now that he's visiting, she thinks it's the right time to say a few words to him, to call him back as he must have wanted, but she could not find the words. Finally, on his third visit of her brother, of her brother's ghost, that's when we learn what really happened to the narrator and, that, and what she is trying to forget for the last 25 years. And here I'm going to read another excerpt from the story. I had not forgotten our nameless blue boat, and it had not forgotten me, the red eyes painted on either side of its prow, having never ceased to stare at, to stare me down. After four uneventful days on a calm sea under blue skies and clear nights, islands at last came into view, black stitching on the faraway horizon. It was then that another ship appeared in the distance, aiming for us, it was swift and we were slow, burdened with more than a hundred people, in a fishing boat meant to hold only a fishing boat's crew and a fishing boat's load of cold mackerel. My brother took me into the cramped engine room with its wheezing motor and used his pocket knife to slash my long hair into the short, jagged boy's cut I still wore. Don't speak, he said. He was 15 and I was 13. You still sound like a girl. Now take off your shirt. I always did as he told me, in this case shyly, even though he hardly glanced at me as he ripped my shirt into strips. He bound my barely noticeable breasts with the fabric, then took off his own shirt and buttoned me into it, leaving himself with just his rugged T-shirt. Then he smeared engine oil on my face, and we huddled in the dark until the pirates came for us. These fishermen resembled our fathers and brothers, Sineway and brown, except that they wielded machetes and machine guns. We turned over our gold watches, earrings, wedding bands, and jet. Then they seized the teenage girls and young women, a dozen of them, shooting a father and a husband who had protested. Everyone fell silent, except those being dragged away, screaming and crying. I didn't know any of them, girls from other villages, and this made it easier for me to pray I wouldn't be one of them as I pressed against my brother's arm. Only when the last of the girls had been thrown onto the deck of the pirate ship, the pirates climbing back on board after them, did I breathe again. The last man to leave glanced at me in passing, he was my father's age, his nose a sand pig's foot, his odor a mix of sweat and the viscera of fish. This little man who spoke some of our language stepped close and lifted my chin. You are a handsome boy, he said. After my brother stabbed him with his pocket knife, the three of us stood there in astonishment, our gaze on the blade, tipped by blood. A silent moment broken when the little man howled in pain, drew back his machine gun, and swung its stalk hard against my brother's head. The crack, I could hear it still. He fell with the force of dead weight, blood streaming from his brow, jaw and temple hitting the wooden deck with an awful thud still resonant in my memory. And so we learn that she was raped in front of her parents by pirates who killed her brother while they were on the boat to America. Back to the present, she touches the bruise and asks if, and, asks, and asks him if it hurts him. Not anymore, he says. Does it still hurt for you? She thinks about this. She pretends to think about this question, whose answer she already knows. She says yes at last. And she remembers more details. When the little man threw her to the deck, the fall bruised the back of her head. When he ripped her shirt off, he drew blood with his sharp fingernails. When she turned her face away and saw her mother and father screaming, her eardrums seemed to have burst, for she could hear nothing. Even when she screamed, she couldn't hear herself, even though she felt her mouth opening and closing. The world was muzzled the way it would be ever afterward, with her mother and father and herself, none of them uttering another sound on this matter. Their silence and her own would cut her again and again, but what pained her the most wasn't any of these things, nor the weight of the man on her. It was the light shining into her dark eyes as, as she looked to the sky and saw the smoldering tip of God's cigarette, poised in the heavens the moment before it was pressed against her skin. Let's sit with this for a moment, because every time I read this paragraph, I feel goosebumps. Think about this girl, 13 years old. She's raped, but this isn't what pains her the most. Think about her mother and her father watching her being raped. Think about the fact that her brother has just been killed think about the silence even as she screamed even as her mother and father are screaming she can't hear anything the world was muzzled the way it would the way it would ever afterward with her mother and father and herself none of them uttering another sound on this matter she says and the thing is violence sexual violence women being raped is a weapon of war. There isn't a single war on this earth where women, young girls and boys are not sexually violated. When she finally asks him why she lived and he died, he tells her that she died too, she just doesn't know it. I can understand this as I read this story. The narrator hasn't moved on from this violence, from this trauma. In fact, she says since then, she avoids day, you know, she avoids day and sun. Her mother says she can't even go to the grocery store. And remember, she also said um, earlier that, you know, she she cannot deal with intimacy. That's why she can't be a mother. On his third and last visit, she realized that the only way to get rid of the burden she has lived with since they let her brother go into the sea is by speaking. And before he leaves, for the first time, she weeps for him and for her. She weeps for all the years they could have had together, but didn't, for all the words never spoken between her mother, her father, and her. Most of all, she cries for those other girls who had vanished and never came back, including herself. Like many stories dealing with war and violence, How this family's lives are shattered can't be put in words. You know, a life full of dreams and now filled with loss. Her life stopped, vanished, as she says, 25 years ago. There's no words to put to this level of trauma, to put to this level of loss, to the gravity of what this family has gone through. One of the other aspects of the story which I enjoyed the most are the ghosts. And remember I said I'll talk in more details about the ghosts um, later on in the podcast, and here I go. I I, I am not a big fan of ghosts and wouldn't pick a book about ghosts. Now, Black Eyed Women isn't about ghosts, but they are central to the story. One of the main characters, the narrator's brother, is a ghost. The narrator herself is the ghost of the girl she once was. And she is a ghost writer. The writer skillfully uses ghosts for the plot to create tension and to move the story forward. Apparently, I've learned through this story that there are all sorts of ghosts. You know, there are good ghosts, bad ghosts, happy ghosts, sad ghosts, ghosts bent on vengeance and mayhem, quiet and shy ghosts, mournful ones, Ghosts that are loved and would never harm anyone, like her brother's ghost. When she saw her brother's ghost for the first time, she trembled, but she reminded herself this was a ghost of someone she loved and would never harm. The kind of ghost her mother said would not harm her. From the beginning of the story, the ghosts are present. In fact, the narrator's mother is an expert on ghosts and she has several ghost stories. You remember how in the bunker, her brother used to tell her ghost stories to distract her from the shrieking of the airplanes. And Victor, whose story the narrator is writing, believes in ghosts. He sees the ghosts of his family all the time. When he closes his eyes, his wife and children appear just like they were when they were alive. With his eyes open, he sees them in his peripheral vision. He smells them too his wife's perfume when she walks by, the shampoo in his daughter's hair, the sweat in his son's jerseys. And he can feel them, his son brushing on his hand, his wife breathing on his neck, his daughter clinging to his knees, and he hears them. His wife tells him to check for his keys before he leaves the house. His daughter reminds him not to burn the toast. His son asks him to rake the leaves so he can jump in them. They all sing happy birthday to him. And I kind of think about this idea of ghosts. If ghosts are real, if ghosts exist, are they then meant to help us deal with loss? Are they meant to help us remember our loved ones when they pass on? Are they meant to help us keep memories? of our loved them, so that we you know so of our loved ones. So we feel them. So we hear them. So we touch them. And by remembering, by feeling, by seeing, by hearing them, we keep them in our memories and we don't forget them. And their lives would not have ended through their death. And then there are ghosts that her mother who possesses so many ghost stories doesn't want to tell. One type of company she doesn't want to keep. The ghosts of the refugees and the ghosts of the pirates. The ghost of the boat watching with those eyes that never closed. Even the ghosts of the girl her daughter once was. These are the only ghosts that her mother is afraid of. Remember the first time when her mother tells the narrator that her brother has come to visit? She doesn't believe her. In fact, she tells her mother that she's imagining things. But by by the end of the story, the narrator believes in ghosts and is searching for ghost stories to tell. She says, ghosts haunt our country, so do we haunt theirs. They are pallid creatures more frightened of us than we are of them. That is why we see these sheds so rarely and why we must seek them out. She now keeps the talisman on her desk. A tattered pair of shorts and a rugged t-shirt, clean and dry, neatly pressed, which remind her that her mother was right, which remind her of her brother. As I close black-eyed women, I think about these characters. A young boy's life full of promise that is cut short by violence. A mother who watched her son's death, who never looked away from her daughter as she was raped on the boat, who can't look at her daughter now. A father who died with the silence of what happened, never being able to speak of it again. And a young woman whose life was ended in that instant, and who 25 years later hasn't recovered. Now that she had seen her brother talk to him, maybe she can start to heal, to leave. If you enjoy this podcast, I would encourage you to read Black-Eyed Women and a full short story collection, The Refugees. If there is a story or novel you'd like me to discuss, share it with me and I'll read it and discuss it. Thank you so much for listening. You can get more information about me on Twitter at Ruth underscore Mukwana. That is R-U-T-H underscore M-U-K-W-A-N-A and my blog, ruthmukwana.com slash blog. Goodbye. Special thanks to my co-producer Jamal Swift. Music by the nomadic band.